the renewables didn't cause this. The renewables behaved as they always behave. The wind moved around. The wind did okay. Um, I mean, it's not like it caused the problem. And solar goes away in the evening. That's no surprise to anyone. And I think it's important to tell everybody that wasn't the problem. The problem was poor planning. And the poor planning was that there was still too much dependency on imports to fill any kind of loose ends that California had. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, joined as always by founder and president of eRenewable, Mr. Mike Niemer. And uh, Mike, episode 21, we are rocking and rolling in 2021. So far, great episodes to kick the new year off, and uh, today does not disappoint either. Today does not disappoint. Everybody's going to enjoy our guest today. Brings a wealth of knowledge and wealth of experience in the renewable space. And everybody, I'm sure, is going to learn a lot from what Steve has to say today. That's correct. Mr. Steve Burbrick, former CEO of the California Independent Systems Operator, is going to join us today talking all things uh, renewable energy. Of course, uh, no stranger to the grid as well out there in California and some of the challenges facing uh, just energy infrastructure, not just in the state of California, but the United States as a whole. So we'll be curious to get Steve's thoughts on uh, just kind of what he had to deal with over 15 years, a lot of the advancements they made in the great state of California. And then, of course, uh, you know, what can the United States learn? Excuse me, what can the rest of the country learn? from uh, the state of California as we go towards a more cleaner, greener uh, energy f- future here in the good old U.S. of A. But before we get into that, Mr. Mike Niemer, we'd be remiss if we didn't let the folks at home know. Uh, they know about the Green Insider Podcast. Uh, make sure you go subscribe to it on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google. And if you do, please leave us a five-star review. You know about the Green Insider. But Mr. Niemer, why don't you tell the folks at home about E-Renewable? Thank you, Fred. As always, you know, eRenewable was founded to bring the PPA and VPPA auctions to the marketplace, trying to bring energy efficiency to that process. Along with that, we're working with my, on microgrid projects, renewable natural gas, unbundled RECs, energy efficiency uh, LED lighting, and energy master plans. And so uh, if any of those needs or something you're in the market for, please give us a call at one 866 renew one or simply email me at mike at erenew.net. So with that, Fred, I'll throw it back to you. I appreciate you, Mike. And like I said, definitely go check out the website, erenew.net. Give us a follow on Twitter as well, erenew2020. That's at erenew2020. You can also follow me and Mike at Mike underscore Niemer. That's Mike underscore N-E-M-E-R. And then, of course, you can follow me as well at the Freddie D. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest. Uh, episode number 21 of the podcast is here, and we are very excited about Mr. Steve Burbrick. Again, no strength to the uh, challenges ahead in the United States uh, as we start to get into a more greener, greener and cleaner energy infrastructure. And Steve, again, 15 years uh, at California Independent Systems Operator. You announced your retirement in 2020 that nobody had any idea that 2020 was going to play out the way it did. And of course, the residuals are still affecting us here in 2021, whether it was 800 megawatts that give or take a battery storage that you guys were introducing to the California grid 
grid, whether it was the rolling blackouts, first time in 20 years that you had to deal with, and then, of course, again, uh, dealing with the COVID and everything that went on with that. Uh, Steve, in, in your illustrious career and, and, you know, when you look at uh, a way to retire, would you have ever envisioned 2020 was going to play out the way it did? And when you look back at it, how did it turn out all said and done? Yeah, Fred, uh, fascinating question. And Fred, thank you. And then Mike, thank you for having me today. It's a great opportunity to be able to talk to people about some of the experiences in California. Um, 2020, what an amazing year. Um, I did tell, I, I decided and I philosophically believe that it's important to refresh CEOs for culture and all kinds of good reasons. And after about you know nine and a half years, I thought it was my turn to leave and let someone else refresh it. Little did I know in February of this year when I told the board that I intended to retire, that it, all hell would break loose on all kinds of fronts. And obviously COVID, uh, you know, first and foremost, and the experience of sending 650 people home, um, you know, in about three days was, you know, something that we all learned from. So there was that. But in the meantime, you know, California has not backed off its plan to decarbonize this electric industry. And I think more importantly, its plan to use that same electricity system to decarbonize much of the rest of the, um, the economy in California. Now, I think we had some really good lessons, though, in 2020 as far as how you do decarbonize and how you do so reliably. As everyone knows, California had some uh, blackouts in August. I don't want to get into the, the root cause of all of that, but I think the principal issue is one of planning. And it's not that renewables are bad. It's that renewables need to be planned for. And the fact that the sun goes down at night is no surprise to anyone. And the solar doesn't work in the evening hours. And when you have heavy loads in the evening hours and don't have enough resources, that's what can happen. And that's exactly what happened. So I think it's more of a lack of planning. And I don't think renewables played any role at all um, in causing those disruptions. But yeah, that wasn't quite how I expected to have my send off, um, both a pandemic and some blackouts. Um, and, uh, you know, it took a while to, to, to uh, exit stage left, but I, I did it. And I am proud, though, of the legacy in California and what we accomplished there. And we'll, I know, Fred, we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. One of the things that you handed off to uh, Governor Newsom in California was the root cause analysis of, of what went down. And you said that, listen, things are going to have to be done differently moving forward. What was the biggest cautionary tale from the state of California for that period of time? Well, Fred, I, I think the first thing you need to do is be intellectually honest and have an intellectually honest discussion about what renewables can and cannot do. And, you know, the wind can blow and there are times when it doesn't blow and that's a fact. And, uh, and uh, solar works really good during the day and it does not work well um, in the evening hours and it certainly doesn't work at all in the, in, in the night. And those are facts. Okay, fine. So now that I have these facts, what am I going to do to serve load during those hours? And then I think you can have an intellectual conversation about how do you do that? Now, there are plenty of other resources. There are other plenty of renewables, geothermal, um, and storage obviously can play a role in that. And I obviously think 
the portfolio effect of regional operations of portfolio of um, of renewable portfolios is absolutely critical, and I pushed for that. So I think you have to think about all of those streams as you go about your planning process. But you have to decide how you want to serve that load. If you want to serve the load in the evening, you're going to have to use something like storage. And then then if you're going to have storage, you're going to have to be intellectually honest to know that you're going to have to build renewables to serve the load, but you're also going to have to have renewables that charge the batteries. So you're going to have to have additional renewables on the grid, which is fine. That's one way to get to it. You also have to get to the three day cloudy, uh, you know, the three days of clouds that you're going to have, which California has, particularly when the monsoons come into the South um, off the Pacific, it happens. It's, it's a reality. And I think it's important to just move to those realities. I'm passionate about getting renewables on the grid. I'm passionate about uh, decarbonizing the grid but I also think you have to do it in a, in a clear thinking, intellectual way. So you don't have issues like we had in August in California. But um, I think they could be avoided. And I think they will. I think it opened a lot of people's eyes. Um, rules aren't bad, but they do have to be properly planned for. So I'm going to ask the million-dollar question in the room then. So what happened? What was the breakdown? Because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you knew what I mean. Again, you're laying this thing out, and this wasn't just something you just woke up August in August and said, "Oh crap!" Here, you know, here, here comes blackouts. So, what happened then? What, where, where was the breakdown? Well, um, I mean, look, California, in a lot of ways, kind of dodged a bullet for a couple of years because it relied it, it relied very heavily when there were shortcomings of you know renewables or other resources, it could import power. And when, when, you had, when you had sort of the perfect storm that occurred in August where there was a massive heat wave across all of the West, this kind of situation could set up. And you may, you may know or you may remember that these blackouts happened in the evening, not during the peak of the day, the peak of the load. It was when you had residual load on the system and the solar has gone away. And California historically used imports to do that. Well, those imports weren't available because there was a heat storm across the entire West. So now you have to think about that condition um, and um, it can happen again. And if there's not enough clear thinking about next summer, then when you get a major heat wave like that, it could happen again um, because the, 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 uh, the, Imports aren't available. And the fact that the uh, imports are under stress is not an unknown. The rest of the West is, is retiring major um, uh, coal plants and others, and they're all moving to renewables. So the resources that were traditionally available to share are diminishing. But again, I think it's just something you have to plan for. And you're not talking just ordinary heat wave. Wasn't that the same time period when Death Valley hit 130 degrees or something? It was a historical, Mike, you're right. It was a historical heat wave. However, heat waves do happen in California. Right. Um, and uh, the last major heat wave of anything that compared to that was in 2006 when we had our highest load ever. 
The other thing I'd point out too is the system is very, very different from 2006. One of the the 2,000 megawatts of nuclear is no longer on the system. Um, The imports are not available like they were in 2006. And um, there's also 7,000 megawatts at last I saw of distributed energy on the California system too. Now that plays a role as well because most of that's rooftop solar. And again, that load comes back onto the system when the solar comes off. Now, Steve, does any of uh, that market get assist from, you put in place uh, that uh, Western energy imbalancing market, right? Where the right. eight states participate. Now, does that, that you created that, does that help any of the shortage that you guys were experiencing? Well, it absolutely does because it takes friction out of the system and it right. allows, you know, I don't want to dive into how you do system setup for the next day, but everybody sets up for the next day. And if they know they can export and import power, they can better plan for that. And you can do that in these markets because you clear them, you know, and know what's going to happen. So um, the, uh, you know, the energy imbalance market is very good. Plus it gives a lot of uh, transparency into what's going on. So that always helps with planning. What year did you put that in place? That first started in 2014. 2014. And uh, it has it has grown. Um, most of the states in the West participate. And the last I checked, about 82% of the load was involved in that market. Well, congratulations. In the, in, in the Western Interconnect. Yeah, that, that was something to put together. It, um, it had its challenges, Mike. I'm sure it did, yeah. <laughs> But uh, but I'm very proud of that legacy. It's 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 uh, I mean, it's saved well uh, in excess of a billion dollars for the um, for the consumers and the customers of the electric system. And how is it able to do that? Well, what it does is it optimizes the system and simply optimizing the system, which California has done for a long time because we've had an optimized market. But remember, in an energy imbalance market, we're optimizing the market with a very sophisticated technology every five minutes. And that squeezes a whole lot of inefficiencies out of the market. It's serving load with the least cost power all the time. Whereas when you don't have an optimization like that, there's a lot of, I used this word before, but a lot of friction in the system. Um, that uh, creates an unoptimized uh, dispatch. One of the projects that you guys had come on board before you left was adding increased storage. And it looked like, just from uh, what I read here at Utility Dive, looks like you guys had around, what, uh, I think 216 megawatts of operational commercial storage capacity, and you were looking to have 923 megawatts, hopefully by the close of 2020. I know that was kind of the, was that kind of the goal or, or kind of the shot there? Where did you guys, uh, where, where, do you know whereabouts, how it ended up, and, and how crucial, and, and we know this, and I think it kind of dovetails what you were just talking about, is the fact that that, you know, if we're going to utilize all these different renewable energies, we got to have more storage capability. Oh, I think storage is absolutely essential um, uh, to integrating renewables. But remember, storage comes in a lot of forms. Hydro is storage. Mm-hmm. Um, lithium ion is storage. There are a lot of storage um, uh, opportunities out there. And I also think we need to make sure we, we expand our thinking. For instance, and there's a lot of circumstances in California where we had excess power that had to be curtailed. And that power 
could create hydrogen, which could store power, um, or other kind of storage that could um, be used later. So I think it's important that we think very broadly about storage. But to your specific question, we had um, we just had gotten about 200, the largest lithium-ion battery system just had come online right before the heat storm, and it was very useful. Um, and, and keep in mind, I want to make sure, I don't want to minimize the blackouts, but they were about three hours in total, and at maximum, it was 1,000 megawatts out of a 50,000 megawatt system. So it was not a widespread blackout by any stretch of the imagination. And, um, you know, it's still very disruptive, but um, it could have been avoided with the right planning. And storage would have been a very important part of that. Steve, what, but he, what made it blackout happen in the evening when the temperatures are cooler and less power is being used? Why was it, why did it happen then? What happened? Was there one, one thing that triggered it? Well, not necessarily one thing, you know, keep in mind um, the heat wave was across the West. So that put a pressure on imports. That's number one. Number two, in the evening hour, you have a combination of central station solar, which uh, at the time I departed had about, California had about 12,000 megawatts of central station solar. And um, we also had um, about seven or 8,000 megawatts of, of distributed solar on the system. And when the distributed solar drops off the system, it looks like load coming back on the system. And obviously the central station solar goes away in the evening as well. And that normally starts to bleed off around 4.30 in the afternoon. So between roughly four o'clock, call it three o'clock and seven or eight o'clock, there's still immense load on the system because it's still very hot. And there's a lot of air conditioning load. So you don't get the load drop off at the same rate as you do get the solar drop off. And so that creates the gap. And the gap can be quite significant. When did you learn to kind of navigate the public relations side of this stuff? Because, you know, we hear blackouts. And obviously, I mean, listen, we're not Steve Berberg and we don't have the the – intimate knowledge and experience that you do and so when we hear it on the t we hear it on tv and in the media it's california's blacked out renew this is why they you know this is why renewables don't work because when you you know they, they, they can't handle the load how have you had to learn how to parse out no no this is the reality versus this is the misconception well, Fred, I have a couple of things going for me. Number one, I'm the middle child out of five. So I've learned <laughs> sort of how, how to handle You've been navigating your whole life, yeah. Yeah, right. And then also, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so I'm kind of a, a, a straight talker. And um, what I, what, you know, you just speak the truth. And I find if you just speak the truth that it works out. The renewables didn't cause this. The renewables behaved as they always behave. The wind moved around. The wind did okay. Um, I mean, it's not like it caused the problem. And solar goes away in the evening. That's no surprise to anyone. And I think it's important to tell everybody that wasn't the problem. The problem was 
poor planning. And the poor planning was that there was still too much dependency on imports to fill any kind of loose ends that California had. So, and as the, the resources continue to decline in the West, that's going to be more exacerbated going forward, not less. So California is going to have to have its own resources. And those resources, at least in the, in the near term and midterm, are going to have to be uh, storage because you can't throw solar at this because it doesn't work in the evening. Wind will help. But California's wind has its own sort. Of, it, it is largely a night-based wind pattern, and it needs to be married with the portfolio effect of wind in the rest of the West. That would better help things out. We know our friends over in the Northeast. We just got done talking to Matt Beaton, uh, former Energy Secretary for Massachusetts, and they're getting you know they're they're exploring offshore wind uh, on that side. Where does offshore wind factor in for you guys? And is that something I know? Again, you've been a proponent of, of multiple types of renewable energy. Where does offshore wind you know factor in for California? I think it's uh, Fred. I th- frankly, I think it's a cost benefit issue because um, in California, the the shelf the Pacific shelf falls off very deeply. It doesn't have the shallow waters like the the East coast does. So it's far more expensive. Then you get to the question of, well, would it not be better than to use terrestrial wind um, say in Wyoming or in New Mexico or something like that as a more economic choice. Now, if California wants to do it as part of a, uh, you know, an economic development, that's, that's their choice for sure. Um, and that's the prerogative. But offshore wind in deep water is going to be expensive. Fair enough. Fair enough. From your experience, again, you, you operate over 80% of the grid there in California. For a country that wants to go more electric, and we're talking about, you know, we're talking about an already archaic grid that we need to make some improvements to, but now we want to go more electric. How, how do we marry the two? I think the best way to handle it is economics. And that's the single word that should be used here because the reason being is, is there enough capacity on the grid as an example to charge electric vehicles? In general, the answer is yes. Now that's a question then of when do we have people charge their cars? You got to use something to get them to to be incented to charge at the right time. And I think economics work. You and I and everybody else will go across the street um, to one gas station or another for a couple of cents. And I think the same thing is true if I give you a five cent or 10 cent discount on your electricity per kilowatt hour to charge at a certain time. I think people will react to that. And I think that's the best way to integrate this as opposed to building a bunch of infrastructure to deal with it. Um, I also think You didn't ask this question, Fred, but I think, um, look, broadly, I think we're moving away from large installations and large power plants and large transmission systems to more distributed systems. And can the more distributed systems, I think, again, it goes back to planning. How do you get them married up with all these things? And I think that's where things are going. And I think economics can play a a very important part of driving behavior to match up with um, the system needs. You know, as we talked about, you know, electric cars uh, with one of our guests in the past, and and you hear about all these municipalities saying, we're going to be 100% green by 2050, by 2035. Does that even seem possible other than 
them possibly buying unbundled wrecks to claim that they're 100% green. Can they really be 100% green in your opinion? It can be done. I think it's a matter of that single word I talked about before. It's a matter of economics. Can you construct an electric system that is completely green? The answer is um, yes, you could. Um, But the question is how costly would that be? Because you would have to have, you would have to over, you'd have to, let's use, let's, let's use an example. Let's say I want to power my neighborhood. Well, I'm going to have to have enough renewables on my system to a, handle the load of the neighborhood at any given time, then I'm going to have to have enough additional renewables uh, available to charge um, batteries, big batteries, mind you, um, that can, you know, can handle the load after the solar is gone as an example. And um, can you construct that? Yes, you could. You'd have to obviously overbuild, now, my neighborhood probably doesn't have enough space for all the solar that you would need. Um, but, you know, with married with storage, it can be done. Um, it would be very expensive uh, to do right now. Now, I am very optimistic that the technology will continue to evolve, that, um, that you know, solar cells will become more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. And that this will be more possible. And I think it's important to pace ourselves to not get too far ahead, because when you get too far ahead, it gets very expensive. And I can give you an example of that. Many of the contracts California signed early on in the renewable push were very expensive. And, you know, here we are, you know, eight years later, and both of you know this very well, the cost of solar is, you know, magnitudes less than it was and i think the same will be with storage as well it'll go it will decline very precipitously um over time you know i kind of feel like the um everybody that's making those declarations so they can put out in the media that they're going to be 20 uh 100 green by 2030 2040 2050 a lot of them are doing it for the good press and have good intentions but you said that economics especially in the next 10 to 15 years, going to make it very difficult. They're going to need the price decrease in that 10 or 15 years to be able to do it in that back 15 years, like what you just described in the last eight years for solar panels, how they came down in price. And so, well, yeah, Mike, if I could, if I could add on to what you're saying, I think the question is, what is it we're trying to do? We're trying to decarbonize our world, not an electric system, our world. Okay, so if we decarbonize the electric system, let's say to 80 percent and we use that electric system to decarbonize transportation, as an example, and, um, you know, uh, homes and businesses and all those things, that last 20 percent is really expensive. So wouldn't it be better to keep the costs down a bit on the electric system so it's more economical to use it to um, uh, electrify the rest of the economy that would be the position i would be in well that makes stop sense. trying to get to stop trying to get to 100 percent. try to decarbonize the economy no because in california you guys are what you're, you're supposed to be what six percent carbon free by 2030 if i'm not mistaken uh that's correct renewables not carbon free renewables oh okay so okay so six percent of the the power on the grid needs to be renewable energy correct now was that was that uh was that mandate in place uh, when you took over as CEO? Uh, no, it when I became CEO, 
I think it had just become 33%. Okay. Um, and I may have my facts wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. And then they went to 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of graduated that the, the load serving entities had to do it over time. And uh, then they, they pumped it up to 60, as you, I think you have said. And now where were you guys at when uh, you bid your adieu? 60. It's at 60 by 2030. Oh, no, but, I, no, but what, were you got, what, was the, what was the percentage at when you left? Oh, uh, that's a hard question to answer. Let me answer it multiple ways. Very Midwestern of you. We appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's probably about 35, 36% of the load served. Now, okay. now that I say that, we regularly were able to serve load in excess of 50% renewables on the system. And, and when I say renewables, I'm talking about wind and solar. Right. Um, not counting hydro, large hydro. We also had hit north of 70% load served on multiple occasions. So um, that's, that's a bit broader than what you asked, Fred. But I think those are, um, I think that gives you an idea of what the art of possible is. And well, the absolutely. art of possible, yeah, you can run the grid on very high levels of renewables. Well, and I, and I heard you, a uh, conversation you had with uh, the folks over at uh, Platts back in 2019, where you had folks uh, from other countries coming to you saying, you know, how are we going to do 20%? And you're saying, and you were telling them, listen, we've been doing 20% uh, over here in California. What is this misnomer, misconception that, that folks have that implementing uh, renewable energy going to be so difficult? Fred, that is a deep existential question. Uh, <laughs> let me try to best answer it. Um, I believe that traditionally those that are in the industry I worked in and, and you know the rest of us work in has been very cautious and uh, focused on reliability and appropriately so. And um, I think a culture shift has to occur to get them to think about this as not, not as a problem, but as a cool opportunity to show what can be done. And, and as a matter of fact, when I was the CEO of the ISO, culture was one of my major initiatives, which was to get people to think about this differently. Because when you get engineers to think about how can I, um, they get very creative. And I think, so that's sort of my view of that. I, it starts at the top. And people have to model it and you have to engage with your people and do all those kind of things to show what's what's possible. So um, it's it's a difficult question, but I can tell you the realities exist and we could show it in California that you can operate the system on very high levels of renewables. And we're not the only example. I mean, SPP has very high wind penetrations and they often serve uh, high percentages of their load. And so does Texas. It's got Texas has the biggest wind production of any area of the country. What was the culture when you got to Cal ISO? Because one of the things they talked about was you took this thing on full charge when, when with, with the renewables. I mean, you, you've been a, a, a beacon of, of making sure that the renewable charge is, is forefront there in California. What, what, what to you was different about it? Back when, again, back, and this was, again, 10 years ago when maybe it wasn't the thing to do. Like, again, everybody's doing it right now, but again, you, might, you were a little bit ahead of the curve 10 years ago. Well, I guess I can tell you that I saw it coming um, because I did. And um, I don't believe if, if I were still there, if I told, I would tell our people, if you think they're going to, we're going to stop at 60%, you're crazy. So we need to start thinking about more than uh, 60%. 
And a matter of fact, um, when I left, I talked to them about, you know, what does it look like at 80%? What does it look at 100%? Is it possible? And I think those are questions you have to ask your people. But you you have to reward them and you have to encourage them um, and engage with them about doing what's what's cool and what's possible. And all I can tell you, I think they're very important cultural elements that you have to um, aspire to. And the fact of the matter is, if you don't do those things as an organization like the California ISO, you will, I don't know if I wouldn't want to use the word wither and die, but I think you have to seize the opportunity. And we did. And in a lot of cases, we are the uh, call the model around the world. We had, I remember one year we had 75 foreign countries come to the ISO to see what we were doing and, and how we were doing it. Um, and that's pretty cool. And when you can tell everybody in your organization that you're on a world stage and they're all looking at you and some of you um, are going to have the opportunity to go to Russia or to India or to South Africa and talk to them about what we're doing. I think that becomes a very compelling um charge for the people and i think they really adapt to that you come from a finance it background uh prior to coming over to cal iso you're we you're now what the second i think uh ceo we've spoken to that came from a different background uh before getting into the the energy side of things how did that background serve you as ceo and how did you adapt kind of how did, how did you grow as ceo uh, that's that's a good ponderable question, and uh, that's a podcast all onto its own. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll we'll take you up that. on that, but, though. Yeah, Fred, that's a good one. Um, you know how? Well, how's the background? Well, first of all, think about an ISO. Let's just get to the bolts of that. It's a technology. We do an optimization. It's a technology company, mm-hmm. so having a technology background is very important. And we cleared. billion a year through the ISO, through transactions. So knowing the financial stuff and economics, we ran a market, that was very important. And little did I know, frankly, my career set me up for this job. I didn't know it. I didn't plan it. But my technology background, my financial background, and I also knew about the energy markets because I worked at a utility that was in Texas that was busy uh, opening up to the market in Texas. So all of that, I think, served me well. Um, from a leadership perspective, I believe in, um, in uh, engagement with your people, and I believe in, um, in servant leadership. And I think in that way, you can get people to follow you. And if you can paint the picture about what, what will happen and what's in it for your people, they will follow you. So... Um, that's what I learned. I look back at some of my first things I did at the ISO and I grimace. Um, and, uh, but you know, I grew over time and, um, I think I left on a good note. So Steve from Springfield, Missouri, then to Tulsa for, to go to college. At what point from after you graduated from Tulsa, did, did you have that little light bulb go off in your head? You thought, wow, this is what the world might have in store for, for Steve Berberick. When, when did you, I, I, did you my, have that thought? Mike, that's a good question. I um, No, I didn't have that thought. And I'll tell you about my thoughts of going to the ISO in a second. 
I had that very same question. I had someone from the University of Tulsa who uh, was in the area and they came out and visited and they're like, how, how did you get here? How did you, you know, end up here? And um, again, it's a, it's a long conversation, but no, I never thought that. As a matter of fact, when I got the, I, did the ISO, I never really thought about or aspired to being the CEO. Um, but I, I saw how it was done and, you know, what it took. And I, I thought I could do it. And, and when, um, and the fact of the matter is my predecessor gave me great opportunities. I was the CIO and the CFO and the COO becoming the, before becoming the CEO. And he, um, you know, I, I'm very appreciative of what he did to help me be, well prepared for it. So hats off to him. He helped me do it. Um, he must have seen something in me um, from, you know, little old Springfield, Missouri and the University of Tulsa and middle kid uh, from middle America can can do these things. And uh, more importantly, Mike, I have a, a cool picture of, of me talking to uh, the CEO of the Arabian Gulf's ISO that operates, you know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar and, and all of that. And that's sort of where it really hits home. How did I get, you know, I was in, I was in um, Dubai having this conversation with him. How do you get to Dubai talking to, and he's wearing a flob, you know, the full Arabian um, uh, suit. And that's sort of, that's what really drives it home. Like, you know, how, how, how did you do that? I don't know. I know. I, Mine's not quite as dramatic as yours, but I grew up in a town of a thousand people in Kansas. We had one flashing red light at stop sign. Yeah. And when I took my trading job here in Houston, I'm walking across the street from the hotel to the 50-story building I'm about to walk into. And that's when I had that moment. I thought, how in the heck did I get here from a flashing stoplight to walking in this building? So I get that yeah. feeling. Yeah, it's something. So congratulations. You should be very proud Thank of yourself you. for what you accomplished. I appreciate that, Mike. Well, obviously, working with uh, the state of California, which you did, you know, hand in hand for 15 years, uh, we've now got an administration that is uh, all in on the advancement and uh, development of renewable energy. And while we're all, you know, excited about the prospects and we all know that it needs to be done, critics and folks that we've had on this show uh, as well that have both uh, experienced both the private and public sector have all said the same thing. That's all well and good. But we'd like a little more guidance. We'd love a little bit more of a roadmap as to, yes, we all want to be carbon neutral. We all want renewable energy. Um, but as opposed to just, you know, throwing wind and solar and everything in the air and hoping that something sticks, we need a plan. We need something comprehensive. I'm guessing as in your experience in California, you just talked about, you know, communication and, and, and things that could have prevented the, the rolling blackouts. How do we prevent something like that on a national level. And if, again, if President Biden said, hey, Steve, I know you got a little time on your hand. Why don't you come over here to D.C. and, uh, you know, give us some tips on something that you might do or suggestions you might make on how we unravel and unroll out uh, this clean energy plan for the United States. I mean, I think first, you know, the headlines would be set the goal and let smart people go try to figure out, you know, set. I want to, you know, a a 40 percent decline in carbon from the electric system. Um, you know, that's the best way to go about it. And then let economics drive what the solutions are and all those things. But 
I also get that that would be one way to do it, but um, there's a lot more dynamics here. Um, the unions want to make sure they have jobs in their state. And I get that. Um, those people have to, you know, feed their families and do those things too. So that plays into it. Um, economic development plays into it. And those all, all realities um, that I think we have to face to as we do this. And as much as I'd like to uh, just drive to a goal, a carbon goal, that's not going to be the case. And I don't believe that will ever be the case. There will always be interests that will drive it. And uh, there will be economic uh, uh, considerations that will drive it. And I can't, I can't say that those are wrong, but they are going to play a role. And that's the reality of it. And, um, and this is part of the, uh, this is part of the conversation I had with our people. Stop wishing about what you'd want and let's take what we've got and work from that. And I think that's an important message. As you see it right now, and, and again, we know wind, solar; those are those are the uh, those are the, the all stars, if you will, the superstars of the renewable energy world. Uh, we, storage is obviously, as we've talked to time and time again with folks, yourself included, is that the is, is that the game changer? Is that is that kind of the 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 hullabaloo, if you will, that once we get, um, you know, once we have more reliable energy storage, then we we're, we're talking about cooking with grease, as we like to say here in the state of Texas. Well, we do have reliable energy storage. I think it's a matter of it, it, it coming down in cost. Again, I will reiterate, it is possible to run, you know, the grid 100% on renewables if you had enough storage. Um, the question is, how much does that cost? And I, I believe that it will eventually become more more cost-friendly as the costs go down and the scales goes up. But I think storage in many forms, it, it needs to be, right now, lithium-ion is largely four to six hours. We need to have longer spans of, of, um, of storage, and lithium-ion is not that well-suited for that. I think we need seasonal storage. Um, and I think as you start thinking broadly about, um, well, again, let's use the excess, store, uh, excess energy that we produce every spring in California. Instead of curtailing it, let's make hydrogen. Um, and let's store, let's, you know, store hydrogen and then let's use hydrogen in power plants. And then you got green. I, the engineers out there will go, you can't do, I get that. I'm simplifying. Um, but my point being is you could, you know, you could generate power for sure with hydrogen. And, uh, that goes back to your economics point though, doesn't it? Say again, that goes back to your economics though. That goes back to your economics point as far as storage in it with uh, store, storing it with hydrogen. Well, it's um, you know it's a very energy intensive process, and if you have enough energy, and in our in, again in California's case, a lot of time the price of energy goes negative. So uh, there must be a solution. There must be a dividend when you have excess energy and it's negatively priced. There must be a way to do something with it. Now, and I'm. There needs to be. I'm not an engineer, but I do the economics. And if somebody's going to pay me, you know, fifteen or thirty dollars to consume power, there must be something good I can do with. That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, let me ask you this, and 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 we'll uh, we'll start wrapping this thing up. Um, in your mind, what's the biggest hurdle uh, as we continue the 
clean energy transition? I think the biggest hurdle is going to be uh, clear thinking about realities and planning around that. And if I could wish anything, that's what I would want um, for everybody to be intellectually honest. Uh, my, my successor likes to use that word, that phrase, and I think that's right. Let's be intellectually honest about what uh, renewables can do and what they can't do and plan around it. And I think if we do that, we can continue to advance this seamlessly and reliably. And um, that, that would be the last word I would have on this matter. All right. Last but not least, you spent 15 years at Cal ISO. Mike kind of touched on it a little bit. A uh, kid from Springfield, Missouri, finds himself in uh, what, what's California like? The sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, uh, or something like that. Six. Um, Six. You know. So here you are um, in charge of one of the largest uh, power grids in the world, one of the largest yeah, GDPs in the world. When you look back at your 15 years. What 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 uh what what's what are you most proud of, and what's the legacy of Steve Berbrick and for Steve Berbrick? Well, I'm I'm very proud of changing the organization culturally um, and engaging with the people. We had some of the highest engagement scores um, in the in, above the 90th percentile, and I'm very proud of that. That means that that we displayed servant leadership and engagement, and that's most important. With that, when you have that, I think you can move the organization and you can get them to walk through walls for you. So first and foremost, I would say that's one of my proudest achievements. Um, Secondly, spreading the markets um, across the West. The West was very uh, distrustful of markets, largely because of the energy crisis back in the 2000, 2001 timeframe. And I think overcoming those distrusts and spreading the market, it, it took a lot of trust in our um, institution and in me personally to uh, to take that leap. So I think that was probably the second thing. And then, you know, being a being a beacon and a a place um, in the world to show what's possible. I think those are probably the legacies and the things that I'm most uh, proud of. You're a young guy still. What's next? Well, I use a lot of cream. I'm not as young as I may look. Uh, it's, uh, it's that California lifestyle. You can't help it. Yeah, that's right. It's clean living. Um, yeah, you should talk to my doctor. Anyway, it's um, – I don't – well, I mean, I have a lot of people who are talking to me right now, and we, we shall see. I, I want to do what's in my passion. Yeah. And uh, frankly, I think the, the, the inflection and the transition that the electric industry is going under and the economy in general um, is a very cool place to be. And as I said, I think the electric industry is going to be a critical vehicle to decarbonize the rest of the economy. And I being being part of that and, it, you know, in a generational kind of thing um, is something I have a passion about doing. And. You know, what form that takes, I'm, I'm open. Uh, but that's probably what I will do, and we'll, uh, we'll see how that unfolds. Fantastic stuff. Mr. Burbrick, I tell you what, I appreciate your time today. Again, you did a, uh, just an absolute phenomenal job uh, out there in California with everything that's going on out there. And again, that is, no, uh, that is no small feat that you pulled off for those 15 years. So again, my hat's off to you, and I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to uh, sit down and talk with us. 
Fred, thank you. Mike, thank you. I appreciate being here today. Our pleasure. Thank you for joining us, and uh, you have yourself a good day. I will. Thank you once again to Steve Berberick, retired CEO for the California ISO. And uh, Mike, I tell you what, again, as Steve alluded to, 15 years, uh, six largest GDP in the world and one of the largest um, you know, grids in the world as well. And just the work he was able to do in those 15 years, kind of being at the forefront of the renewable energy uh, push and you know, leaves California in a better place, uh, with blackouts notwithstanding. And of course, as he laid it out there, um, you know, learn some things. They face the challenges head on. And California, despite what you may hear, is in a better place moving forward power-wise than they were before Steve came on board. Yeah, there's no doubt that, that that's absolutely the truth. You know, Steve provided all of us, not just you and I, but all the listeners out there, an insight as to what's going on in California that they probably didn't know before. might have had some suspicions, but Steve really did. Uh, educate everybody as to the the inside skinny as to what they're seeing and how they reacted to different markets. And so we appreciate his time uh, for taking the time to talk to us today on the Green Insider. No, he was great, and uh, I look forward to what he's going to do on his next step. And as we said, he's a young guy, and he's a fellow fellow Midwesterner uh, like you and I. Of course, we won't hold it against him that he's a Missouri guy, but hey, uh, you know, got to have a you know few uh, few faults here and there. But no, Steve was absolutely perfect. So uh, listen, folks, make sure you check out all of the Green Insider podcasts over at Google, Spotify, as well as Apple iTunes. And Mike, as we like to tell folks, make sure if you go over to Apple iTunes, leave us a five star rating. Why? Because we promise. As you just heard with Steve Berbrick, guys like uh, Mr. Matt Beaton, we guarantee you learn more about renewable energy after you listen to the Green Insider than before you stop by. Very excited about episode 21 coming out. Make sure you give us a like and a listen, all that good stuff. And then, of course, uh, we've also got Ken Robinson from Engie coming on next week as well. So lots of good stuff going on here at eRenewable. Make sure you go to the website, eRenew.net. If you have any ideas or suggestions for a podcast guest, give us a heads up. Mike at eRenew.net or Fred at eRenew.net. If you you or somebody you know wants to be a guest on the Green Insider Podcast, let us know. We'd be lo- we'd love to hear from you. So, Mike, thank you once again. Great show from you, Steve, and everybody here at the E-Renewable team. Thank you so much. For Mike Niemer, I am Fred Davis. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by E-Renewable. We make going green easier. Good night. God bless. Hey!